If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you wave, get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. God wants everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, important phrase, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, and therefore you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for a day that is set aside within our culture to remember the indescribable gift that you have provided to us in your Son. And we pray, Lord, for those that don't know you yet in this room, have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and those of us who have known you for long decades, that you would give us a fresh understanding and a fresh awe for what it is that you have done for each of us in your Son. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There's an old story that I'm very fond of this time of year, and it was of two women who were out shopping just a few days before Christmas, and as they stood outside a display window of a major department store, they saw a nativity scene complete with the baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary and the animals and the wise men and the shepherds and so forth. And disgustedly, one woman said to the other, those Christians, they already have Easter, and now, look, they're glomming on to Christmas. <laughs> and it reminds me how the more secularized our culture becomes, how year by year, the true meaning of Christmas is kind of a mystery to a larger and larger group of people and the level of confusion that exists concerning the true meaning of Christmas. I think that um, I'd like to this morning spend a few minutes just examining the true meaning of Christmas from an unusual place maybe that, than some of us might think of from Paul's letter to the churches in, in Galatia here in chapter 4. I want you to notice a very, very important phrase there in verse 4, and it is the phrase, in the fullness of time. And in writing that, the Apostle Paul is careful to let us know that God sent forth his son Jesus in the fullness of time. And that phrase, in the fullness of time, communicates to us that Jesus was not randomly born into human history but that he was born into human history at just the right time. 
And it reveals to us the fact that his birth was a part, that his birth is a segment of a larger story and a larger plan. That when we join the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus in the Scriptures, we are joining a story from the Bible at its middle. And it is a story that is already in play, a story that has begun long before. Now, if I'm going to have any hope of understanding this birth, I have to have some understanding of the beginning of the story as well as to know a little bit about its end. It's kind of like if you made an arrangement to visit someone in the holiday season in San Francisco uh, to go see a play of some kind. You've arranged for what theater you're going to, what time, and so forth. And you get caught in traffic coming over from Modesto, and uh, as a result of it, you arrive at the theater uh, late, and in fact, not just a little late, but very late, and you join the presentation in the middle of the second of four acts. Well, if that happened to you, uh, you would settle in next to your friend, and you'd be at a complete loss to try and understand what it is that is going on in front of you, to understand the significance of the sights, the sounds, and uh, everything that is unfolding before your eyes on the stage for the simple reason that you sit there completely ignorant of the storyline that has occurred setting the stage for this particular scene. And thus you find yourself continually leaning over to your friend in Acts 2, 3, and 4, and whispering all kinds of questions into her ear in an attempt to kind of get enough background in the story to try and understand a little bit about what's happening. And you'd ask questions like, who is that, and why are they important, and what does that mean, and why is that significant? And this would be the plight of any person who decides to not only go to a play, but nobody reads a novel by beginning in the middle of the book uh, without the foundation laid early in the book. We'd have no hope of understanding it. Maybe you've had the aggravation of watching a movie at home and then having a younger brother or sister walk in midpoint and then now want to ask you a million questions about what's going on, and there's no way that you can kind of bring them up to par. But it's an admission that without knowing the beginning, we can't understand what's happening in the middle, much less the end. Now, this is the plight, I think, of every person who walks into a church on Christmas morning, hears the Bible's account of the birth of Jesus, which is act number two, without knowing what is going on in Acts 1 and Acts 3 and 4 as well. And for this reason, I want to just briefly give you, in, Paul's, uh, in the words of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, give you Acts 1, 3, and 4 so that you can understand why this birth is so significant. Act 1 of the story began all the way back in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. 
and Genesis records for us the creation of man and the fall of man. Of the creation of man, the Bible teaches that man was created in the image of God. He was created by God, that we were created for relationship or fellowship with God. That's the purpose for our lives. Genesis chapter 3 describes for us the fall of man. The Bible teaches that Adam and Eve sinned in that ancient garden of Eden after being created by God, and they did so by partaking of a particular fruit that was forbidden by God. There was nothing wrong with the fruit. It was just that was the lone prohibition that he had given uh, to them. And so they partook of that forbidden fruit. They sinned, and this is known as the fall. And that fall of Adam and Eve introduced spiritual death into the human condition. That is, it cuts us off, that fall, from the spiritual relationship with God that we were created for. But that fall also introduced into the human condition physical death as well. I think someone might protest at this point, perhaps one or two in the room, and upon hearing about Adam and Eve and original sin and the fall and the Garden of Eden and so forth, someone might protest, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I think all of its mythology. How in the world can I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man is true? What physical proof, tangible proof, can you give me that I am a literal descendant of Adam, that I am fallen as the Bible teaches? Well, there's many evidences I could give to you, uh, but we'll keep ourselves limited to one. The single great evidence that you and I possess within us on a daily basis or within us in in terms of our fallenness and the proof that we are descendants of Adam and Eve and we are fallen, as the Bible teaches, is in a word, death. Because you die. Uh, The Apostle Paul put it succinctly when he wrote to the church at Corinth, in Adam all die. And death reveals each of us to be a descendant of that ancient Adam, and it ties each of us to that ancient Garden of Eden. So you and I want an explanation for the reality of death, the origin of death. Why does it exist in the human condition? And that is the Bible's explanation, the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And everyone ought to have a explanation for, not, uh, for the origin uh, of death and the source of death in terms of in the human condition. That is the Bible's explanation. Now, the Bible doesn't leave us, thankfully, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, because it was in the context of the darkness and hopelessness of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 that God then made a promise concerning a Messiah concerning an anointed one, concerning a Savior that he would send into the world in order to then provide mankind with a salvation from every single consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden, the consequences of which each of us bear in this room to this day. And God spoke in this way in Genesis chapter 3. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, that is the devil, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all of the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, that is her seed, shall bruise or crush your head or your authority, and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, you will do damage to the coming Messiah, but ultimately all that will accomplish, speaking of the cross, all that will accomplish will be the crushing of your authority. And God declared there in that initial prophecy concerning the Messiah in the Bible that he would be born of the seed of a woman. That is, that he would be born without the seed of a man. That is, he would be born of a virgin. And so in Genesis chapter 3 begins this long prophetic portrait of the coming Messiah a portrait that fills the entire Old Testament. Isaiah then, uh, much later, declared exactly the same thing by the Holy Spirit when he wrote in Isaiah chapter 7, "'Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel.'" We sang about Emmanuel this morning. It means God with us. Notice three aspects with me of this kind of prophetic portrait that uh, is ascribed to Jesus by the Apostle Paul in verse 4. He declares that God sent forth His Son. In other words, that Jesus is the Son of God, and as a result, He is divine. That He was born of a woman, Paul wrote, testifying to His virgin birth. He was born under the law, that is, that He was and is a Jew. Well, all of that is the beginning of the story. That is Act 1. And if we don't understand the beginning of the story of my need for a Savior, of my separated condition from God, and of God's promise for a Savior, then I will have absolutely no appreciation for the birth of that Savior, for the provision of that Savior on that Christmas morning 2,000 years ago. Without knowing uh, those early chapters of Genesis and something of the Old Testament, then the birth of Jesus is completely meaningless to us, certainly irrelevant uh, to us. Act two, act, act two is, of course, Jesus' birth, which we celebrate at Christmas, but the story didn't end with His birth. Acts 3 and 4 are then recorded in the Gospels, and they tell us that Jesus then went on to live a perfect and a sinless life, and then He was crucified in order to provide mankind with a satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And further, that He didn't remain in that dead condition for any significant length of time, but that He rose from the dead on the third day, at demonstrating His authority over death and hell and uniquely qualifying Him to provide mankind with everlasting life. Why? Because you have to possess a victory over death. You must possess everlasting life yourself in order to then offer everlasting life to others. Now, this then brings us 
to our final consideration in this passage. And the question is this, for what purpose was Jesus born? For what purpose did he live? For what purpose did he die? What was the purpose of his resurrection? And there are many reasons for all of this, but we'll limit ourselves to what is in our passage uh, this morning for our Christmas meditation. We're told in verse 5 that he did all of this, first of all, in order to redeem us. And the word redeem that is used there in verse 5, it means to free someone upon the payment of a ransom. And the imagery would have been one that was very, very familiar if you lived at that time in the Roman Empire. Slaves were very common in the Roman Empire. It's estimated that there were at least six million slaves in the Roman Empire. And how did you get a slave? You bought slaves. So there were these markets in which you bought and you sold human beings. You bought and sold uh, slaves. And so all of this very, very common and would have been understood by uh, the reader. So picture, if you will, the image of slaves being brought out by slave traders into a marketplace and then having a slave stand on some kind of a raised platform there surrounded by this large crowd of men who are now seeking to purchase a slave. And so the auction begins. Someone will give this amount, and then they raise, and they raise, and they raise, and they raise, and so forth, until finally the slaves are being sold to the one who has the price to pay for their purchase. But imagine... And this is kind of what Paul is bringing to the mind of the reader, an ancient reader here. But we can imagine it. Imagine if a buyer goes through all of that progression at enormous expense to himself. He purchases that slave, but then does what no other slave owner does. He then astonishingly buys the slaves, makes the slave his own, but then proceeds to set them free. And that is precisely what God has done for us in Jesus. Once we were slaves to our sin, perhaps you remember it, <laughs> I remember it very well, slaves to our fleshly appetites. They just said, stand at attention, and we stood at attention, and we obeyed uh, the desires of our flesh. Slaves to the devil, and then a slave to all of the guilt and all of the condemnation that uh, goes with that. But God has not only purchased us through the sacrifice of His Son, but then He has also set us free from our former bondage and our former guilt. Jesus promised exactly that when he declared, therefore, if the Son, speaking of himself, makes you free, and he does, then you are free indeed. Merry Christmas for the redemption, the liberation that is ours this morning because of the birth of that child and the sacrifice of that child and his resurrection for our sin. Liberation from sin's penalty and its power. But second notice in verse 5 that God doesn't stop there. He isn't content with merely setting us free from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. I would have been happy 
If that's all that Jesus came into the world to provide me with, uh, that would be all the gift that I could ever even hope to expect uh, from him. But Paul goes on here and declares that God has adopted us into his family. Now, under Roman law, an adopted child, when you adopted a child, this was a very significant commitment that was being made uh, by the man and woman that was adopting a child. When you adopted a child, that child coming into that family now had the full rights of every other child within that family. At the moment of adoption, everything changed for that child. I remember uh, I spent quite a number of years on my childhood in foster homes. And when you would move from a bad one to a good one, wow, what a change. Everything changed. Not long enough, but uh, because they'd move you along. But it was something to become a part of moving from something awful into something good. But at the moment of adoption, everything changed for the child. And usually the adopted party was an orphan. And so now here they are adopted into this family, and as a result, they enter into a quality of life that they could have never otherwise known. Everything changed for them. Their identity changed. Their present circumstances changed. Their entire future was forever changed. And the same thing is true of every Christian. We are made members of God's family, and everything changes as a result because of this adoption. Our identity has completely changed when we became a Christian. Paul wrote of it, and he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. Our present circumstances are changed by virtue of that adoption. Peter wrote, and he said to us as Christians, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness, remember it, and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy. And as a result of this adoption, our entire future is changed. God speaks about my future, your future as a Christian, as being so sure the fact that we will one day stand in the glory of heaven, that he speaks of it, though we are on the earth now, he speaks of it as being so certain that he speaks of it in the past tense. Romans 8, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, he, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Merry Christmas. We are adopted into God's family and made a part of his family forever. And then third notice in verse 8 or verse 6, the sonship is spoken of here. And he declares, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. 
In other words, Jesus was born into the world, lived the life that he lived, died on the cross for our sins, was raised again on the third day in order to bring us into a deeply personal relationship with God. You realize God could have adopted us and shunned us. He could have adopted us and put us off in a corner, isolated us from the rest of the family and so forth, but he didn't. He adopted us so that he could bring us into what is referred to here as an Abba relationship with him. Now, if you're thinking Dancing Queen or Fernando, you're thinking about the wrong Abba, and you have very poor taste in music, by the way. You had other choices in that era. That's my humble opinion. I never got Abba, uh, that whole thing. But Abba in the Scriptures isn't used in that way. It is an Aramaic word that means daddy. And Jesus did what he did in being born into the world, dying on the cross for our sins, and then rising again on the third day, providing us with salvation in order to bring us into a daddy relationship with God. And, the, and it speaks of the intimacy and the simplicity and the innocence and the beauty of the relationship with God that Jesus has made available to us and that God desires to have with each of us. We throw around the phrase, and it's a very good one, that Christianity is a relationship with God, and it is. But that doesn't quite capture all of it. It is an Abba relationship with God that speaks of tremendous intimacy. And so Merry Christmas, he has given us this kind, not only made us a part of his family, but then brought us into personal access and relationship with him. And then fourth, in order... Jesus went through all that he did, including his birth, in order that we might become an heir of God in uh, Christ, as he uh, speaks of that in verse 7. As Christians, one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to take us into the heaven that he is personally uh, preparing for us and personally preparing us for where we will enjoy the perfection of that holy environment forever and ever and ever. And all of it is ours. We are heirs to all of it. It is part of our inheritance because not only of Jesus' birth, but his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Of that heaven, Jesus declared in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Sometimes you'll hear Christians talk about some good thing that has happened in their life, and they'll say, or some particular blessing of God that is a part of our lives in this side of heaven, and they'll, sometimes they'll say, all of this in heaven too. 
And that is what Jesus has provided for us. All that is ours in this life, but then heaven after this life as well. Now, the Christmas season always reminds me of another story as well. And the story goes something like this. Once upon a time, a snail, so I don't know if it's true or not, but you bear with me. A snail crawled up to the front door of a beautiful rural estate, and the snail knocked on the door. And when the man of the house answered the door, he couldn't see anyone on the porch but this snail. So he stooped down and he picked the snail up and he threw it as hard as he could and as far as he could away from the front door out into the vast lawn uh, that marked the entrance to the estate. The snail slowly began to make his way back to the front door again. And arriving three weeks later, he knocked on the door. And when the man answered, the snail asked, what was that all about? (laughs) Well, in case you're wondering, that's what Christmas is all about. The birth of a Savior come to save us from our sin, to deliver us from the power and from the penalty of sin, and then to one day deliver us into the perfect and peerless glory of heaven and to enjoy no longer a relationship with God through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And that gift of salvation God offers and makes available to every single human being in this world and every single one of us in this room. And the thing about a gift is a gift does us no good unless we receive the gift, unless we make the gift ours. I mean, you can have a gift that is uh, infinite in worth uh, sitting before you in a box, and unless I open it and make it my own, it does me no good at all. And so it is with the salvation and the gift of salvation that God offers to each and every one of us, the forgiveness of sins, the beginning of relationship with him. He will never force it on you and I. He merely offers it. And salvation occurs not when I have an intellectual assent to the fact even that all of these things are true. Maybe you were raised in church and you believe all of these things to be true. You have no argument with all of it. But it isn't enough to believe that all of these things are true, that the present is real, that the present sits there. I must then go, I must take the extra step and as an act of my will, receive that gift into my life. And here's how a person receives that gift. By simply coming to God in the privacy of our own heart and saying to God, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I've been imperfect as long as I can remember. And I'm not surprised that when I ran into you one day, that I would find a God who was so perfect and so holy that even one sin in my history would separate me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son into this world 
in order that he might die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sins. And I also believe that he was buried and rose again on the third day. And I believe that he is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I turn from my own self-will, my own direction in life, my sin in my life. This is called repentance. I turn from all of that, and I turn to you now this morning, God, and I put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, and I make him my Savior today. And in the instant that you do that, and salvation is not a progression, it's an instant. The greatest miracle that can happen in a person's life will occur in your life when the Holy Spirit will come into your life now and bring all that we've talked about this morning and begin now for you the relationship that you've been created for, a relationship with God. After our service, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front, and they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship uh, this morning. This gift is all there for the asking. It's all there for the receiving. At this time, I'd like to ask the worship team to come out and to close our service up this morning with a little bit of worship, and, uh, and then we can be on our way.